0: Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. My name is Tom Henderson, a lawyer in our Disputes Division in London. This podcast is the first in a series focusing on the impact of Brexit on business as we get closer to Brexit date, 29 March 2019. Today I am joined by Anna Pataldi, a partner in our Disputes Division, and Maura McIntosh, a professional support consultant in our Disputes Division, both of whom have particular experience and interest in conflict of laws issues. In this podcast, we are therefore going to be discussing what businesses need to know about the impact of Brexit on their continued use of English governing law clauses and English jurisdiction clauses in contracts after Brexit. This is an important topic right now as businesses will be entering into new contracts which remain in force after Brexit. So looking at the effectiveness of these clauses in the future will be an important part of any new contract negotiation. To start with the choice of English contract law, we know that the Rome 1 regulation currently sets out the rules for determining what substantive law should be applied by courts when resolving contractual disputes in the EU, and the Rome 2 regulation deals with non-contractual obligations. In essence, EU courts will respect an express choice of English governing law in a contract for both contractual and non-contractual obligations. Maura, with that in mind, should businesses be concerned about continuing to choose English law in their contracts?
1: Well the short answer is no, I don't think businesses should be concerned about choosing English law for the general commercial contracts. Uh, a- after Brexit and regardless of whether or not the UK and the EU agree on the terms of a withdrawal agreement, which of course is a source of daily speculation in the press at the moment, EU member states will have to continue to apply Rome 1 and Rome 2 and they'll have to give effect to a choice of law under those regulations regardless of whether or not it's the law of an EU member state. So. For those purposes, it will be irrelevant that the UK will no longer be in the EU. Member state courts will still have to give effect to a choice of English law just in the same circumstances as they do currently. So far as the UK is concerned, the draft withdrawal agreement provides that Rome One and Rome Two will continue to apply where the contract is concluded before the end of the transition, so before the end of December 2020. But in any event, the government has said it intends to incorporate the same rules, the so Rome One and Rome Two rules, into UK domestic law, and it's published draft rules on how it's going to do that. So the English court's approach also won't change whether or not there's a withdrawal agreement. So taking all of that into account, In in most general commercial contracts, and we're not talking here about consumer contracts or certain types of financial services contracts where there may be different considerations, if a contracting party would have chosen English law before Brexit, I think there's no reason why they shouldn't do so post Brexit. And of course there are many reasons why parties choose English contract law. This isn't really the place to rehearse all of them, but in a commercial contract text I'd, I'd pick out, I think, probably primarily predictability of outcome both because of the established body of case law and because of the court's approach being based on freedom of contract, giving effect to the party's agreement with only limited scope for concepts such as good faith which tend to detract from that. So for me those are key to the popularity of English law.
0: Anna, the more interesting issue therefore seems to be the impact of Brexit on a party's chosen dispute resolution procedure. Many businesses will have been relying on the key EU legislation regarding jurisdiction and reciprocal enforcement of judgments, the Recast Brussels Regulation, to ensure that EU member state courts defer to the English court, where that has been chosen in an exclusive jurisdiction clause, and to ensure that their English judgments are readily enforceable across the EU. How is that going to change after Brexit?
2: I think we need to look at this from two viewpoints so both with and without a withdrawal agreement in place as I think different considerations apply in those scenarios. So first of all where we do have a withdrawal agreement and therefore a transition period until the end of uh, 2020 the position is that the current rules in the recast Brussels regulation will continue to apply to proceedings started before the end of the transition period. So that's agreed again at negotiators level and isn't controversial if proceedings are then started in that time frame exclusive jurisdiction clauses are going to be respected by eu member state courts as they currently are and english judgments are going to be easily enforceable around the eu as at present if you're entering into an agreement now though you're going to be interested in what the position might be after the end of transition as proceedings may not be started before the end of 2020 particularly if you've got a a long-term contract So far as that's concerned, well, presumably during the transition period, discussions will take place between the EU and the UK regarding what will replace the recast Brussels regulation at the end of transition. There are a number of possibilities there, and in my view, at least, it's highly unlikely that we will end up with nothing.
0: So, Anna, you think it's highly unlikely that there will be no agreement between the UK and EU on jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments post-transition. In that case what are the most likely possibilities for a replacement regime?
2: Well, I think there are three main options you need to look at. The first is the UK reaching a bespoke deal with the EU, which presumably would be on similar lines to the recast Brussels regulation. In that case, little if anything would change between the UK and the EU post-transition. That's the UK government's primary objective, it seems, from the various papers that's published over the last year or so. The second possibility is the UK reaching an agreement with the EU, Norway, Switzerland and Iceland whereby the UK joins the 2007 Lugano Convention. That convention currently applies to jurisdiction and enforcement issues between the UK and Norway, Switzerland and Iceland. But if we don't have a bespoke deal, then it would apply between the UK and the EU as well, of course, as Norway, Switzerland and Iceland. The position under Lugano would be very similar to what we have under Brussels, but without the improvements the recast version of the Brussels regulation introduced in January 2015. So I think most significantly that means we'd be back to the position where our party could begin what has been called a a torpedo action. The third possibility is the UK joining the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements the UK is currently a party to the convention by virtue of its EU membership, but would have to join in its own right to continue to take uh, the benefits of the convention post-Brexit. It only applies at the moment between the UK and Mexico and Singapore, but if there's no bespoke deal and no agreement to join Lugano, then Hague would apply between the UK and EU, as well as, of course, again, um, continuing to apply Uh, against Mexico and Singapore. The Hague Convention applies only where there is an exclusive jurisdiction agreement um, but it provides for similar, although not identical, rules to those in the recast Brussels regulation uh, insofar as respecting jurisdiction clauses and enforcing judgments is concerned. It's possible to sign up to the Hague Convention without agreement from the EU or anyone else for that matter. So this is a step which could be taken very quickly after Brexit. Although the Convention might not enter into force for for another three months, so there might be a gap in its application.
0: So Maura, coming back to you. Are there any issues that arise under the Lugano or Hague Conventions which make them less desirable than the UK reaching a new bespoke agreement with the EU, in similar terms to the recast Brussels regulation? Anna mentioned torpedo actions, for example, when she talked about the Lugano Convention. Could you expand on on that a little?
1: Yes, there are some issues. Um, So far as Lugano is concerned, the procedures on enforcement under Lugano are a bit more cumbersome than we have currently, so that's one issue, but I think the major difference is the one that Anna mentioned relating to so-called torpedo actions. So just to explain what that means, um, a, a, a torpedo action is where a party races to bring proceedings in a member state which is not the state that's been chosen under an exclusive jurisdiction clause in the hope of delaying the proceedings in the chosen court. Now, under the recast Brussels regulation, the non-chosen court has to stay its proceedings immediately in favour of the proceedings in the chosen court. So the chosen court's given priority. In contrast, under Lugano, priority is given to whichever court the proceedings were started in first. So the chosen court in that circumstance has to wait until the first court has determined that it does not have jurisdiction, which can take some time depending on where the proceedings are begun. Now, as far as Hague is concerned, There are also some disadvantages compared to the current position, relating in particular to its more limited scope. So for instance, and probably most importantly, if the jurisdiction clause is non-exclusive or one-way, then the Convention doesn't apply. Nor does it apply if all of the parties are domiciled in the EU, as the recast Brussels regulation would take priority in those circumstances, and so there may be some doubt as to whether an EU court would then respect an exclusive English jurisdiction clause. Under recast Brussels, EU courts have an express power to stay proceedings in favour of a non-EU court, as the English court would be where those proceedings are first in time, so if the English proceedings were started first, but the position is rather unclear outside of that express power. There are also some questions which commentators have raised as to whether Hague will apply post-Brexit, i.e. once the UK has joined Hague in its own right but where the relevant jurisdiction clause was agreed before that point. So that also does give rise to some potential uncertainty.
0: And Anna, coming back to you, I asked earlier about likely changes post Brexit, and you said you thought we need to look at this from two viewpoints. The first being a transition period and what might follow it, and the second being no transition period, and the UK exiting without agreement on 29 March 2019. We've looked at the first scenario in some detail, What do you think will happen under the um, second scenario?
2: Well, if the withdrawal agreement isn't entered into, so we don't have a a transition period, then I don't think there would be time, even assuming political will, which would be doubtful, um, for, for any bespoke deal to be negotiated, nor for an agreement to be reached for the UK to join the Lugano Convention. I should perhaps mention at that point that Lugano itself anticipates that contracting parties would have a year to consent to the accession of a a new member, although, of course, it could be shorter or maybe longer. I would therefore anticipate that in that scenario, the UK would join the Hague Convention, which of course requires no agreement, uh, and then negotiating a deal on jurisdiction and enforcement would join the queue of all the matters the UK would need to thrash out over time with the EU, In those circumstances, if the Hague Convention didn't apply on the facts, for example if the jurisdiction clause was non-exclusive, then so far as enforcement of English judgments is concerned, that would depend on the domestic law in the member state where the judgment was being enforced. Most countries, although it seems there are some exceptions, provide for enforcement of foreign judgments without a convention being in place, although the type of judgment enforced may be more limited, and the procedures involved more time-consuming and costly. So far as respecting an English uh, exclusive jurisdiction clause is concerned, if Hague didn't apply, as Maura mentioned, there's some uncertainty as to whether EU courts can stay proceedings in favour of a non-EU court, as of course an English court would be, unless those proceedings are first in time.
0: So, overall, if there is a transition period, nothing will change in the short term, and there are a number of options post-transition. If there is no transition period, then there are more issues and risks, in the short term at least. Maura, how are commercial parties approaching this potential problem?
1: Well, we need to remember, I think, that the significance of these issues will depend on the circumstances. So if a judgment is unlikely to require enforcement, or not in an EU member state, For example, because there are assets in the UK or outside of the EU in a country that will enforce English judgments, then Brexit doesn't really come into the equation. For many commercial parties, I think their main driver will be ensuring they get the right result in any litigation that arises under a contract. And the English courts will continue to be known for their quality and independence, and for procedures that allow evidence to be tested thoroughly, for example. So it seems, both from our experience and from survey evidence that's been published by Thomson Reuters, that many businesses are adopting a wait-and-see approach, particularly where English law and jurisdiction are the norm in their industry or for particular types of contracts. There are a number of approaches a business can take where it does have concerns, and that all of those different approaches have advantages and disadvantages, as you would imagine. So a business could include an exclusive English jurisdiction clause, for example, um, so as to seek to take advantage of the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. But since, as as we've seen, that convention will not apply in all circumstances, it's still worth checking in addition whether an English judgment would be enforceable under national laws in the EU state where enforcement is going to be necessary, I think, particularly if that's just one or a limited number of states. Alternatively, a business could decide to include a non-exclusive English jurisdiction clause, which gives flexibility at the time the proceedings commence, when things may be clearer. The downsides are that you're then definitely outside of the Hague Convention, and of course, as jurisdiction is non-exclusive, then the counterparty may start proceedings in a state where you would prefer not to litigate including a one-way exclusive English jurisdiction clause may get around the risk of litigating where you do not want to, because in theory the counterparty is going to be restricted to bringing proceedings in England, but you will have more flexibility to go elsewhere if that seems more favourable at the time. But again, these sorts of clauses are outside of HEG, they're considered non-exclusive, and they may not be given effect in all of EU member states. Um, For example, the French courts have refused to recognise one-way jurisdiction clauses in some circumstances, so that is a risk. Uh, And in any event, a counterparty may not agree to a one-way clause depending on relative bargaining power. Another option, of course, is to include an arbitration clause. It's clear that EU member states will all respect arbitration clauses and enforce awards under the New York Convention. So arbitration with a seat in London will not be affected by an exit from the EU. So I think if a business is comfortable with arbitration and wants a one-size-fits-all solution, then that is certainly an option. And of course, you could opt for the jurisdiction of an EU Member State Court, either applying that Member State's own law or sticking with English law, which the EU Court would then apply under Rome 1 or Rome 2. The advantage is certainty of applicable rules on jurisdiction and enforcement, but Obviously, the disadvantage is a fundamental change from what the party would otherwise have wished to provide for, assuming the starting point is that they would otherwise have gone for English law and jurisdiction. So those those seem to me to be the, the, the main options. But as I say, many are doing, doing nothing at the moment and, and adopting a wait-and-see approach.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you both this question. Um, Bearing in mind all that we've discussed, do you believe that the UK will continue to be a premier dispute resolution centre after it exits the EU next year?
1: Well, I do. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty at the moment, but I think it will ultimately get sorted out, hopefully sooner rather than later, and I think commercial parties will continue to choose English law and jurisdictions for the reasons they've, they've done for many years.
2: Um, Well, I think the uncertainty isn't ideal, of course, but but there are options and you have to weigh up all the risks and advantages of the different options in the round in your particular circumstances. So I think that perhaps that means more attention has to be paid to the dispute resolution clause than usual. And one size isn't going to fit all unless you go for for arbitration. But I think in some ways that's no bad thing. Um, Dispute resolution clauses should never just be part of the boilerplate anyway.
0: That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for your time, Anna and Maura. Uh, Lots to think about there. I think the key takeaway is that we all have our fingers crossed that there is going to be a withdrawal agreement and that the UK and EU will reach an agreement during the transition period, which mirrors the recast Brussels regulations so that that any of the issues which could arise don't. Um, But until we have that certainty, it is prudent for businesses to think about the future effectiveness of dispute resolution clauses in the context of their business and in particular, in a no-deal scenario. Thank you for listening.
2: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills.
1: For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.